Reading from the 20th chapter of the Gospel according to John, beginning with the 19th verse. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together, with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he had said this, he showed them his hands and sighed. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Now Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my fingers where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were in the house again and Thomas was with them, though the doors were locked. Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of His disciples which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. And that by believing, you may have life in His name. The Word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. A woman jumped from an airplane. I have no idea why. I can remember sitting in a dove field in Chester County near the airport there and watching people jump out of perfectly good airplanes and thinking they must be crazy. But jump they did and jump she did. And she pulled the paracord, the ripcord on her parachute, having anticipated the thrill of the chute opening and arresting her fall. And she was dumbstruck when the chute failed to open. And she kept accelerating. Suddenly she doubted her body's ability to survive impact after falling 20,000 feet. Faster and faster she fell until panic set in and she simply forgot that she had the rest of her life to try to fix it. She doubted that she could do anything to change the situation. Doubt left unchecked 
can become the soil in which the seeds of panic are planted. Panic that anxious paralysis... Apparently I can't talk today. Panic that anxious paralysis brought about by the sudden realization that we cannot preserve the status quo or stop ourselves from hitting the ground at 200 miles per hour unless your World War II pilot Alan McGee who survived a 20,000 foot fall by landing on the glass of a French railroad station. But unfortunately, unlike Alan, most of us human beings lack the ability to foresee what will break our fall. In a reading reflection on the text for this week, I wrote this. I offer you a generalization that I think is true almost every time I've read an article or heard a sermon about Jesus presenting His wounds to Thomas. It has begun with the notion that the author or preacher does not like the doubting designation that is attached to St. Thomas's name. I agree with all of them, except that I'm not so sure we should easily dismiss doubt as a bad thing. After all, if there was no such thing as doubt, why would we need faith? Doubt floods the thoughts right often. Maybe more often than we would like to admit, we doubt many things. The sincerity of politicians, the safety of medicines, the fuel efficiency listed on the window sticker of a new car, product claims on late night TV infomercials. Doubt is sometimes not a bad thing. But when Thomas is called Doubting Thomas, there seems to me to be an air of abasement attached. Is it not true that all of Jesus' disciples abandoned Him? Did they abandon Him because, abandon him because they believed in Him? No. They abandoned because they doubted His ability, His power, or His desire to free Himself from the hands of the Roman Empire. They doubted that He could deliver Himself from the clutches of death and the nails of crucifixion. Well, the disciple whom Jesus loved is said in John's Gospel to have been standing nearby. But he probably wasn't waiting expectantly for Jesus to rally himself and say enough of this foolishness and come down from the cross. He was there to watch him die. There was plenty of doubt to go around. There is no need to single out Thomas. Surely the severity of his death and their doubt about Jesus' resurrection has something to do with the disciples being gathered in a locked house. Do you ever feel doubt? Do you ever doubt anything? Do you ever doubt your own abilities? Do you doubt your safety? Do you doubt your salvation? Do you doubt Jesus? When confronted with the news of Jesus' resurrection, does it sound like an idle tale, nonsense, empty talk? That's how the Gospel according to Luke says the disciples first responded to the women who returned from the empty tomb to tell them the good, good news. They thought it was an idle tale. So I wonder, is it an idle tale to you? 
It's easy enough to believe that a first century Jew could develop some sort of messianic complex, say outlandish things, equate himself to God, challenge the religious elites, and through his preaching about the kingdom of God, become enough of a threat to Rome to get himself put to death. That's easy to believe. That's easy to see how it could happen. It would be preposterous to assume that the death of someone like that could possibly do anything for us today unless the story of Sunday is true. For if on a Sunday morning God raised that man who had been crucified dead as a hammer on Friday, vindicating his messianic self-image, vindicating the outlandish things he said, vindicating his claim to be God's Son, vindicating his signs, vindicating his miracles, vindicating his words about God, vindicating his words about himself. If God did that, then there is no other logical stance but that Jesus is who He says He is. He died for us and He said what He was doing for us, He actually did. And that through our faith in Him, our belief in His resurrection, we have the eternal life He said we would have. It's the Paschal's wager paradigm. If I am wrong, if Jesus is not risen from the dead, then Jesus was just an eccentric, oddly popular guru and brazen liar who got himself killed. If I am right and He is raised from the dead, then Jesus is the Son of Man and the Son of God who has the authority and power to forgive us our sins and give us eternal life. This is no small thing. How we respond to the story of Jesus' death and resurrection has ramification for every single part of our lives. Our individual lives and our life together as the people of God. That response may well determine whether or where you will find meaning in life. Feel whole or panic if your chute does not open. Or if your 401k disappears. Consider the disciples who were cowering behind a locked door. My assumption is that they are in the same upper room where Jesus had shared his last meal with them, and they were afraid. Consistent with Luke's story, it seems they had not believed Mary Magdalene when, we came, when she came to them and said, I have seen the Lord. John does say that one of them had believed, yet there they are, afraid. They're hiding from the ones who had handed Jesus over to the Romans. They are buried in the same fear that weakened the heart of Peter when he was asked if he was Jesus' disciple as Jesus was being questioned by the high priest. These people have invented the panic room. 
Long before wealthy yuppies had the idea, Jodie Foster made the movie. They are emblematic for us of a life lived in utter unchecked doubt. Outside of belief in the resurrection of Jesus. If we have no faith in the resurrection of Jesus, then every little disturbance has the potential to bring deep concern. Every threat of harm, whether physical, economic, or relational, can bring us to panic. And rightly so. For if Jesus is not raised, then 75 or so years is all the life that we have and all there will ever be. If Jesus is not raised, then life truly is scarce and we rightly guard it at all costs, even without regard for others. And we rightly panic when any existential threat arises. If we live in doubt of the resurrection, then we do not have abundant life. Rather, we live under the tyranny of death, having been convinced that everything is scarce, including life itself. This seems to be the state of Jesus' disciples. They are suffering under panic, the logical fruit of doubt, the result of belief that life itself is scarce. They believe this because Jesus' life has ended and His promises, they think, died with Him. They hide locked in their own panic room, but an intruder is coming. Just not the one they expect. John says when it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, and the doors of the house where Jesus, where the disciples had met, were locked for fear of the Jews. Locked for fear of the Jews. That doesn't sound like a description of people who were about to go into the city and risk being jailed and in fact be jailed for preaching that Jesus was risen from the dead and that salvation had come in His name. How does one go from cowering in fear to boldly putting yourself at risk for exactly the harm of which you were previously afraid? That would be comparable to the woman in the parachute story deciding to take the chute off in midair after having managed to get the blooming thing open. It'd be like flinging open the door of your super fancy, impenetrable panic room so that the home invader could find you faster and kill you more easily. These people who were cowering in fear were shortly thereafter willing to preach Jesus' resurrection out in the open, even in the temple that Jesus was accused of threatening. Clearly something intensely transformative happened to them. Could it be that the doubt that produced in them the fruit of panic had been taken away. John says that what happened is Jesus came to them. Jesus was suddenly standing in their midst behind locked doors. The resurrection was no longer a theological proposition. A thought project or a possibility. It was a real thing. A reality standing with them. Wholly observable. And touchable. 
The change in them did not come from within. It did not come from a mass hallucination. It did not come from a simple shift in thinking. It came from a paradigm shift. A change in the way they saw the whole universe. Their basic understanding of reality had changed. And their focus shifted away from the fear and from the preservation of their own lives. The one whom they knew to have been dead had appeared in their midst. He spoke to them. He showed them His wounds. A disembodied spirit does not show wounds. A hallucination does not appear, appear a second time solely for the benefit of Thomas who was not present during the first hallucination. The words Jesus spoke were the exact ones they needed to hear. They were caught in the exact opposite of peace. A state of panic brought about by fear and fueled by doubt. And belief in Jesus' resurrection can cancel our fears as well. If Jesus is raised, then we who have faith in Him will be raised as well. His his resurrection vindicates that promise. This is indeed the will of my Father, said Jesus, that all who see the Son and believe in Him may have eternal life, and I will raise them up on the last day. And in another place, Jesus said, The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life. And have it abundantly. If He is raised, then these promises are true. And there is no scarcity of life. No matter how many new viruses come. So perhaps the best word for us from this reading are Jesus' exhortation to Thomas, Do not doubt, but believe. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet come to believe. How do we respond to the story of Jesus' resurrection? Is it an idle tale? Or is it an opportunity to embrace the abundant life that God is offering to us through Him? The disciples were cowering in fear behind locked doors. Jesus' appearance to them was not what they were expecting. There's good news in this story for those of us who have doubt, whether a little or a lot. Jesus meets the disciples in their doubt. And then He returns for the one who was not there. He gives them exactly what they needed to overcome their doubt and believe. And dear ones, that has to mean that Jesus will meet us in our doubts as well, especially in times such as these. And in that way, doubt becomes a good thing. It gives room for Jesus to work in us. So let us not cast dispersions upon St. Thomas's desire to see the wounds for himself. Instead, let us acknowledge our own doubts. 
lift them up to God and ask that the risen Christ would meet us and speak His peace into our lives as well. Let us pray. Eternal God, search our hearts. Wrestle any doubt away from us. Heal our uncertainty. Replace it with the certainty of faith. That gift from You that opens our hearts and gives us a vision of Christ enthroned. Help us, Lord, to believe that He is raised and to confess that He is Lord. Amen. Dear ones, the peace of Christ be with you. Amen. We respond in song singing, He lives.